The title of the lesson is, No More Children, from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. And I will tell you that this is derived from the book of Ephesians, which in my judgment is a masterpiece, on the church of Christ. When we use the term the church of Christ, we're not discussing just a denomination among denominations. We're talking about the church which Jesus built. We're talking about the one which he said in Matthew 16, verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. And when Paul wrote the Ephesians, he wanted them to understand what the church was. And really there's just two basic messages. In chapters 1 through 3, the book reveals the blessings enjoyed. You know, chapter 1 and verse 3, all spiritual blessings are to be found in Jesus, to be found in Him and in the church. And then the chapters 4 through 6, the behavior enjoined. This is what I want you to do, how I want you to live. Or you could put it, it is, the book reflects the gifts bestowed, looking at what God gives man, and then the growth of the body. The fact that God wants us as his children to grow into a spiritual, perfect man. In order to accomplish what I was asked to do, I want to look at three things. I want to look, first of all, at the figure of the child. You know, what does it mean to use this figure of childhood? Second of all, to look at a focus on the text. Let's look at just the phrases that are found in it and see if there's some great lessons to be found there. Then finally, the fruits of the study. That's the things that you leave with, hopefully the things that you a remember after the lesson is over. So we talk about the figure of the child. Uh, there's a really good book I have in my library called The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. How the Bible often uses various figures of speech that are scattered throughout that have some great powerful lessons. And when you go to the topic on children, it talks about the 500 references that are there are most often, or at least half of them, are literal. That is talking about, for instance, Abraham had a child, or maybe Hannah had a child. And you start thinking about each of these, and those are literal references. But then that means the other half are figurative. That is, they are talking about like people being like children. And when you start thinking about that, you understand that the Holy Spirit chose this as a valuable means to communicate important lessons to us. And while the world sometimes does not prize or value children, the Bible holds them in high esteem. Because when you think about children, sometimes people they say, well, children would be seen and not heard. Or children are to not be a part of the conversation. Well, when you get to the Bible, in Psalms 127, verses 3 and 4, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. God is looking and saying, If you are blessed with children, it is a blessing. And it is an honor. The New Testament passage that catches my attention 
is Mark chapter 10. And we read there in verses 13 and 14 that they brought little children to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. You see, so many times the idea people had, you know, it's all about the adults, it's all about uh, the older people, but Jesus said, no, the children are important. And you think about the way the Lord had them viewed. But the absence of children is, in the other way, considered to be an occasion of sadness. We're going to look at at least three passages here that will talk about that. But I will tell you that just like there's sadness in a home where you don't have any children, there's also sadness in a church where there's no children. Quite frequently, I get the privilege to go speak at other congregations And uh, there'll be a child who'll be crying out and some mother will come out just all embarrassed and say, I'm so sorry. I said, that doesn't bother me. Tickles me to death when I hear children. I'm thrilled that we have a lot of children here. I'll tell you why. Because that's the future of the Lord's church and what it will grow into. But you think of physical barrenness in Genesis 11 and verse 30, but Sarah was barren and she had no child. And you know how badly she wanted one. Even to the point that she was willing to give Hagar to Abraham to have a child that she could call her own. In Genesis 25, verse 21, and Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Or you think about Judges chapter 13. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Repeatedly through the Old Testament you can see woman after woman, family after family that did not have children and the sadness that was a part of that. But beyond the fact that children are a blessing, beyond the fact that they're wanted and they're needed, both in the home and even in the church. If you're going to use this figure, you need to understand the nature of children. There's some things that are characteristics of them. Number one, they have no malice. They have no ill will, no hatred of heart. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. When he says, in malice be children, you can take a a white child and a black child, and you can take one that is from the Oriental countries, you can take one that is rich, one that is poor, and you put them all in a room with some toys, you know what's going to happen? They're all going to just play and get along really well. It's only later when they've been taught to have their prejudices and their hatreds and their selfishness that children do that, but... Little children, they have no malice. They have no ill will in heart. Children also have innocence. That is, there's a a lack of of, um, desire to do wrong within them. And the Bible describes that, for instance, in Matthew 18, verse 3. I say, assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Little children have no uh, 
uh, sin laid to their charge. Deuteronomy 1 and verse 39, Moreover, your little ones and your children, whom you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. You know, when Moses was trying to tell the children of Israel what God was going to do, that all of those who had rebelled in the wilderness were not going to go in, but he said, your children will. You see, these children here who don't have the capacity to choose between good and evil because they're so innocent. He said, they're going to do that. Isaiah 7 and verse 16. In Isaiah 7, there's a concern for Judah, Syria, and Ephraim, or northern kingdom Israel, are coming coming down and they're going to uh, attack Judah. And Ahaz is, is concerned about what's going to happen. And God is saying, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. Ahaz is more interested in going to Assyria and saying, Assyria, let us pay you and buy you off. And God is trying to explain what's going to happen before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose good. The land you dread will be forsaken by both of her kings. You know, you're worried about Syria, you're worried about Ephraim. They're not going to make it before the child shall refuse evil and choose good. Children are innocent. They don't know about choosing evil and choosing good. But a third characteristic of them is that they are naive. That means they're susceptible to exploitation. I don't know how many of you have noticed the, uh, what children are told by their parents. Don't accept candy from strangers. Don't, don't go and get in the car and ride with someone that you do not know. The reason why is children are so susceptible to someone telling them something. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, Paul would write, I do not write these things to shame you, but as beloved children, I warn you. He's not trying to tell the church at Corinth, you are just, you know better. In fact, he's trying to say you're still children. You see, the problem arises when children fail to mature physically, mentally, or socially. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That is, is that he was progressing in his life and his knowledge, his understanding, his physical growth, and even his social interaction. If you and I had a child and that child at age two was not talking or that child was not associating with other children, we would express a certain amount of concern. You see, children, you want them to develop in all of these areas. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's something that everybody recognizes. If you want to look at a six-year-old child playing in the backyard in the sand with a little Tonka truck, or maybe the little girl sitting in the back room playing with their dolls, that makes sense. However, if you've got a 21-year-old boy and he's sitting in the backyard and he's playing with the Tonka trucks in the sand, you may need to express a little bit of concern. And you see, that's the point that he's driving home here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual as 
but as in the carnal, as the babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. What he's saying is you are still childish. You've not grown as you should. And then Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, he said, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. What we recognize is the fact that children should mature, should grow, and if they do not, then there's some serious concern. Well, how do you get your children to grow? How do you get them to mature? Galatians 3, 24 says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Chapter 4, verse 2. But you're under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Parents says to their children, I want you to learn. Sometimes they teach them themselves. Sometimes they commit them to teachers who will do so professionally. In Ephesians 6 and verse 4, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, the training and the admonition of the Lord. Hebrews 5, verses 12, chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, he talks about the chastening of our fathers. And he talks about that a father deals with his son because he wants him to grow. He wants him to mature. We learn in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he goes on to say, as newborn babes, we as Christians have been brought into the spiritual world by being taught the gospel, we then need to grow with that gospel. Now, I said all of that to lay a foundation that when we get to chapter 4, verse 14, no longer children. You understand the figure of speech that's being used. Now, let's go to that passage and let's focus our attention on chapter 4, verse 14. The church at Ephesus was facing a critical situation. They were facing a crisis of a doctrinal nature. How do you know that? Well, five years before Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, we learn that he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He tells them in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves will men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul knew what was coming. He warned them that it was coming. He spent three years warning them. And now as he addresses the elders, he says, it's coming Shortly after the book of Ephesians, Paul writes Timothy. The book likely being written somewhere around A.D. 59, probably 61 or 62. Paul writes to Timothy and he says to him in chapter 1 and verse 3, I urge you when I went into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. 
There's a doctrinal problem there in Ephesus. And Paul's been warning it. Here it is, Timothy. It's present. You've got to address it. You've got to handle it. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit says expressly in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There are going to be people who will teach error. And Timothy, you've got to deal with it there at Ephesus. The church desperately needed maturity. See, I'm going to go back to chapter 14, verse 20. He said, in understanding, be mature to the Corinthians. In chapter 5, verse 4 of Hebrews, But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. What God wants for churches like Bobby Branch is that we take time to mature spiritually so that we're able to distinguish right versus wrong, good versus evil. God had provided everything they needed for the maturity of the church. Peter would write in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that you and I need to live a faithful life and to be godly, God has provided for us through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and virtue. It's through knowledge, through understanding that we gather that. In chapter 4, I want you to look at verses 11 through 13. These are the verses that precede the text that we're going to focus on. And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. To a perfect man actually is to a mature man. God has given everything that is necessary to bring about and provide for the church's maturity. Now, some of these relate to temporary provisions. Apostles and prophets. Apostles are only going to last for that first generation. The prophets would only last to those upon whom the apostles had laid their hands. And after that, the gift of prophecy wouldn't be no longer. Paul explains that in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, verses 8 through 11. Where there be prophecies, they'll fail. Where there'll be tongues, they'll cease. Where there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. And by the way, look at verse 11. He uses that one as a child. He compares that to their growth. But what Paul is concerned about is the consistency of their teaching. That you be no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. You know, you believe this today, you believe something else tomorrow. And I think about children. When you're a child, you hear something and say, oh boy, that's right. Someone long, comes along and says, well, no, it's the other way. Well, yeah, that's right too. And then someone else says, well, maybe it's this way. Well, yeah, that's right. You have not gone through the period of 
the testing of all the ideas yet. You're still testing, you're listening, you're learning, you're learning discernment. I think about the early churches like in Acts 17 verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to where they find out these things were so. You see, what they're trying to discern is, is this right? Is this wrong? 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 22. He says, Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You go through this discerning process. But there comes a time where you know what you know. You have weighed, you've tested, you've proved, and you come to the point where you know that you don't vacillate. Let me explain. Does the Bible teach that you have to have faith in order to go to heaven? Absolutely it does. Hebrews 11 verse 6, John 8 verse 24, Mark 16 verse 16. Does the Bible teach you you have to be baptized for the remission of sins? And here's a person who's maybe young. They don't grasp that yet. But there ought to come a point in time because of reading, study, learning, knowledge. You say, that's what's right. Listen to Jesus, John 8 verse 32. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. 1 John 2.21 I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and know lies of the truth. You can know that you know. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he describes a situation where people were ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, as Paul is writing the Ephesians here in chapter 4, verse 14, that you no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. I want you to get to a point where you know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. You know which side to stand on, and you stand on it. But you see, there's a complicating factor. He talks about those who... Have the craftiness of deceitful plotting is the way the New King James reads. These are deceivers. There are people out here who are attempting to try to twist and persuade the minds of people. And 2 Peter 2, 1 tells us as there was false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you. 1 John 2, 26 these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. 1 John 4 verse 1. Do not believe every spirit because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here's the bottom line. Churches can be disrupted and particularly the church at Ephesus could be because of those who are teaching things they ought not. Now here's the challenging part. They know what they're doing. They know they're teaching error. 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 speaking lies in hypocrisy. To be a hypocrite means you know who you are but you're pretending to be somebody else. You're speaking lies but you're doing so in hypocrisy. And these people have gotten to the point where it doesn't bother them anymore. 
their own conscience is seared as with a hot iron. And these people, what are they motivated by? It's by greed. First Timothy 6, verse 5, he says, Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Or Titus 1, verse 11, they do so for the sake of dishonest gain. 2 Peter 2.15 says they love the wages of unrighteousness just like Balaam did. Jude verse 11, he said they've run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. Yes, there are people out there who will tell you what they want you to hear so they can profit off of you. Now realize I have thrown a whole lot out there. I've gone a lot faster than I needed to. But I did so because I wanted to get to this last point. Is what is the fruit from our study? After you read the passage, you see it in its context, you understand the figures that's being used, what do you walk away with? What do you learn? The theme of the lectureship is on unity. How does this figure into all of this? Unity is both desired and obtainable. Can a church like at Ephesus stand together and do what is right? You see, we're staying from chapter 4. Look at the first few verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what I want you to do. But then he describes seven ones. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. Those seven things about which you and I can know that we know. We can have unity that's provided by the Spirit. But unity is destroyed when it either comes from within or without that teaches something different. You and I have to face the fact that there's going to be a world out there who's going to deny what God has said. We're living in a world today that's quickly becoming much more secular. And it is confronting what we're trying to teach on a daily basis. But then you've got some people within the body, that is within the church, who are creating that same kind of disturbance from inside. And Romans 16, verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note or mark those who cause divisions and offenses and contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. You understand there's some people working against the unity of the body and you recognize who they are and what they're trying to do. Elders are the first line of defense. They're the ones who are right at the very forefront of stopping this from happening. When you read the qualifications given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, you see the role that God gave them and I like the way that Paul put it in writing to Titus in chapter 1. 
He said, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Whose mouths must be stopped. Why? They're subverting whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. When it comes a challenge to protect this local congregation, the elders are the ones who first say, we will not let that be taught here. Second of all, the evangelists have their responsibility to clearly, plainly teach the difference between right and wrong. Paul would write, Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have the itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see, as the elders, they are the ones on the first line of defense. Then the Lord said, I want the evangelist to do that. And you remember, going back to chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some pastors, and then evangelists and teachers. You see, that was God's plan to be able to accomplish that. In order for the church to grow and mature, we as members have to grow individually. Someone says, that's a strong congregation. What makes a strong congregation? Strong members. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. The church at Bobby Branch is the body of Christ here. But we each individually make up parts of it. And we individually have our own responsibilities. And we have to beware of those who can cause us to lose our salvation. You see, what's at stake in all of this is not just the fact that well, our numbers may go up or our numbers may go down. In 2 John verse 8, Look to yourselves that do, we do not lose the things we've worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. You know, one of the things that just disturbs me so greatly when I hear about churches going through struggles and splits and divisions is because I know there's going to be some casualties. There's going to be some of the people whose souls are going to be lost eternally because of all this. If we can prevent it, that's a much better thing to be done. The future of the Lord's church depends upon how we grow now. No longer children. It's time to grow up. We're glad that tonight you've been here. Perhaps you are wanting to become a Christian. I do know that 
whenever someone wants to be baptized, they'll occasionally come and say, I've been thinking about this for a while. I've been just waiting for the right opportunity. Maybe that tonight's that opportunity. We'd love to assist you in becoming a Christian because you believe in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Him, and then be baptized. If you're a Christian and you need restoration, we'll pray with you and we'll pray for you. Would you come as together we stand and sing?